This is NiceAce Now, your source for real-time and on-demand professional learning designed specifically with the independent school educator in mind. A podcast of interviews, seminars, and conference talks to listen to whenever and wherever you like. Brought to you by the New York State Association of Independent Schools. I'm George Swain. We're here at the 2018 Annual Conference of the NYSEACE Educational and Informational Technologists, otherwise known as NEAT. And I'm here with Surya Matsu, who self-describes as an artist, engineer, and journalist based in Brooklyn. He's also an investigative data journalist at The Markup. Previously, he's been an R&D journalism resident at iBeam and a research scientist at the Center for Civic Media at the MIT Media Lab. As a contributing researcher at ProPublica, Surya was working on Machine Bias, a series that was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for explanatory journalism. Thank you for being with us, Surya. Thank you for having me. So you call yourself a data detective, or more formally, an investigative data journalist. Can you tell us what that means? Sure. Um, What it means is that I focus on trying to find ways in which technology causes harm to people. I don't use data to make graphs. That's kind of the distinction. A lot of data journalism that, that we think of at the moment tends to be more from the, from the visualization or explanatory perspective. We tend to do more comprehensive storytelling mm-hmm. um, to explain how something works. But what we tend to focus on, a lot of the stuff I do doesn't get come out in the story in the end in anything more than a finding. Mm. So that's kind of the dis- difference. We, we say stuff like African-Americans are twice as likely to be harmed by something. It's, that stat is the thing I work on, but, um, which, is, which is, I think, the difference. I think we investigate uh, the systems. I think that, does that make sense? Sure, sure. You opened our session today by stating that technology is a representation of our culture. Can please talk about that and explain that a little further? Sure. I think uh, what I really mean by that is that we focus a lot, when we talk about technology, we focus too much on the actual technology. But as a part of the work we do in like the data-driven investigative world, we try to broaden the scope of an algorithmic system to include the people who make the decisions that go into the algorithm. Because often what happens is things, a lot of this unintended consequences rhetoric that we hear to do when it comes to the harms to do with technology, a lot of that happens because when these systems are being designed, the decisions that are being made, they don't consider everyone. And so what ends up happening is whatever the views are, whether they're explicitly stated or implicit. So for example, if Silicon Valley doesn't have good gender representation, that is shown in the technology. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's shown in the technology is because when that meeting was happening, when they decided on a certain feature, there wasn't a woman in the room to tell them, hey, this might not work for me. Or this might not work for us. And, the, in a, and that's kind of what we are focused on. It's to say that the technology in itself is kind of banal. It's But someone is making this decision. When these systems work at large scale the way we use them now, we need to have equal representation in the room of how they operate. And this, I presume, would connect to what you were saying about how our ethics create technology, not the other way around. The technology does not create our ethics. That's right. So in a more practical sense, I found it interesting. Can you describe what happens when we're out in the world with our Wi-Fi on, when our device is not connected to any network? Yeah, it's your phone is very needy. It's really trying to connect you to Wi-Fi because it thinks that's what you want. 
So what it used to do is it would have a list of all the networks that it connected to in the past, and it basically broadcast the list of those the, those network names totally unencrypted, trying to connect to them. So what that means is that if you had ever whatever conferences you've connected to Wi-Fi to, whatever hotels you stayed at, whatever restaurants you've connected to Wi-Fi to, all of this information you were basically kind of carrying around you in an unencrypted halo uh, when you carried your smartphone. And I did a project that kind of tried to highlight how that happens a couple of years ago. I should state that now they, this is this was flagged as a security vulnerability. So since about 2017, this has stopped happening. Oh, okay. Well, I found it interesting. You had a visual that you shared that was the portrait of someone's day after you collected their phone search. Can you sort of give us a verbal description of what that visual looked like? Yeah, sure. It was like a frame uh, where I printed someone's Wi-Fi portrait uh, and just kind of framed it with a list of all the networks their phone had ever connected to. Uh, it was like a black frame with a with a white uh, what do you call that like a border like a white border, and just a small image of the the portrait. So you shared with us the idea that if you live in what you called a smart home with smart devices, how often are the devices in our homes reaching out to the mothership, and how often is the mothership reaching out to your devices? First, can you please clarify what you mean by the mothership and then explain the usefulness of that question in the first place? Right. So by the mothership, I mean the company that owns them because I think when we did that investigation, Cash and I both kind of know that we sort of rent these devices and we don't fully understand how these smart devices work. They live in our home, we buy them, but we don't actually, like if you like, open it up and poke around in it, you violate, you void the term, the, the security warranty. So there's actually like when we, when we say that we own, when people say that you, I bought an Amazon Echo, it's more like you lease an Amazon Echo because it's actually still basically in the control of Amazon. And that's kind of what we mean, that the, these devices are constantly talking to the servers of the companies that made them because a lot of the stuff they do makes sense, right? Like they need like security updates, they need to chipping home to get like other kind of information from your other devices. But the thing we were interested in is what does it feel like to live in a smart home if you could see the digital emissions of a smart home? These devices are so invisible that we don't realize how much chatter there is. And we were just curious if you could get a sense of like the volume of that um, by measuring it somehow. And is this connected I to the idea of a surveillance economy? And can you say a little more about that? Absolutely. So the surveillance economy is basically an economy that, that makes money by tracking people and their behaviors and their habits and the things they do using the devices that they, that they own. So with the smart home, what we really, the thing that we found that was, our, our biggest finding was that these devices are actually really annoying to use. And they don't really, they didn't really benefit Kashmir when she put them in a home, but they still collected all her data. Right? That was the kind of the crux of our finding. And the reason that that's important, in our opinion, is because why then why why are these things becoming smart? What is the incentive to have a smart toothbrush? Right? It's not because it's not actually to make you brush better. It's to be able to give you discounts on your insurance premiums when you do. So the ability, so, so the restructuring of how society is operating. I mean, surveillance economy is one way of framing it. I like to think of it more as digital colonialism because I think it actually reflects the kind of difference in, um, 
in requirements of this economy like i don't need a smart toothbrush they need me to have a sm- they being whoever's making that need me to have a smart toothbrush because there's value in my brushing data for them well in our session you briefly mentioned the idea of data hygiene sort of interesting connection there <laughs> can you define what that is data hygiene and what it implies for the general internet user yeah i i mean i don't have a clear definition but i think for me, like for me the way i like to think about it is the difference between how your how you think about like when you how you see your data versus how you smell your data and what i really mean by that is trying to think about what technology you're using how much understanding you have or how much literature is there available of how that technology actually works and how much information it collects off you so for example if you go to starbucks and use their wifi it's kind of understood that google will know about your track your internet data because google provides this, the wifi for starbucks so data hygiene for me really just means how much data are we leaking through our smart devices in a way that we don't really realize and how can we make that better so the effects on young young people seem limitless to me and if i understood correctly your program herbivore is an attempt at stemming some of those negative effects tell us a little bit about herbivore sure so herbivore is a packet sniffing tool that's designed to kind of make packet sniffing packet sniffing like network packet sniffing something that it people do usually uh more fun and engaging and exploratory for people who are not it people and basically the kind of premise of herbivore and tools like it are to provide agency to the people who are using these devices to to frame questions and answer it themselves when we made herbivore our goal was if you have an app and you're like mm, this feels kind of gross you sh- you should have a way to see what that app's doing right and 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 our kind of hope is that if you build those tools in a way that is accessible fun and easy to use it'll change how people think about the relationship with technology as something that is given to them and transform it to something more where they have some agency can you please name just a few of the implications of your work for our schools right so i think my hope or my kind of goal with what i spoke about uh in the stock was to basically decouple uh like to, to or, or rather to decay decouple i'd say i want to broaden what we consider to be digital literacy so that it includes more of a humanities mindset in it like that's what i really want to go away with where like yes learning the technical stuff is important i think there's a lot of rich uh content and curriculum about teaching kids how to code and things like that but i think if we broadened it out to include all the physical objects that make up the internet the companies and the people that work with those objects a deeper understanding of why these things work the way they do we'll be able to ask more meaningful questions of these companies of these products and not feel so disempowered by them it's a noble goal <laughs> well, you've left us a little frightened, I have to admit, but you've also left us enlightened, and we thank you very much for that. Thank, thank you for you. being thank here. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this Nice Ace Now podcast. Production support comes from Andrew Cook. Interview and conference support by Judith Sheridan and Barbara Swanson. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. For additional podcasts as well as information about our conferences and other programming, please visit our website. nysais.org